Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larson, as we push and prod and poke the blob each week in hopes of seeing our way to a blobless future and a more sound national security and foreign policy for us all. This week, we will be talking to MIT scholar John Terman about the progress of the Iran nuclear deal this week and actually the mythologies of U.S. and Iranian foreign policy that have built up over generations. But first, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Africa this week on the heels of a high-profile visit from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, his counterpart from Russia. Blinken announced a new strategy for the sub-Saharan continent, which sounded a lot like previous strategies focused on security, civil law and society building, democracy, strengthening public health and economic development initiatives and preventing the disastrous effects of climate change. Interestingly, though, in Blinken's remarks Monday, he insisted that the U.S. would not ask African nations to choose sides in the greater world conflicts involving Russia and China. But the official statement was sure to point out that, quote, open societies are generally more inclined to work in common cause with the United States, attract greater U.S. trade and investment, pursue policies to improve conditions for their citizens, encounter harmful activities by the People's Republic of China, Russia, and other actors, end quote. Of course, this is all part of the dance. Where Lavrov came into Africa last month, overtly blaming the U.S. and the West for the African food crisis, Blinken is taking, not surprisingly because of his position, a more diplomatic approach, though it is certainly not lost on him that African nations, including South Africa, where he gave his speech on Monday, had not, had not signed up largely uh, with Western and U.S., sanctions against Russia. They've remained largely unaligned and, you know, irresponsive to the West's entreaties in this regard. In remarks to reporters on Monday, South African Minister for International Affairs Naledi Pandor said her country won't be bullied or patronized into getting in line for, for either the sanctions or further recriminations against Russia. Furthermore, she called out the U.S. for a lack of consistency when it comes to the quote-unquote rules-based order, implicating its biases when it comes to Israel and Palestine on one hand and championing the Ukrainians' right to self-determination on the other. We've not seen an even-handed approach and utilization of the prescripts of international law, she said. This is what at times leads to cynicism about international bodies and a lack of belief in their ability to protect the weakest and most marginalized, end quote. So what do you make of this, Dan? Are we looking at a new strategy in Africa or just an attempt to play catch up in great power conflict with Russia and China? Does any of this amount to a hill of beans? So I think well, one of the things that can be said in favor of the administration's uh, announced strategy or, or what they've been proposing in Africa this week uh, is that they, they did say a lot of the right things and they did emphasize a shift towards uh, greater uh, resources being dedicated to diplomacy and development and away from simply militarized solutions and counterterrorism that have defined our involvement in Africa for much of the last 20 years, especially. 
Uh, and so that I, I give them credit for that. And and Blinken did say a number of the right things in his speech, saying that he, he's not there to dictate to these countries. He wants to uh, work with them in equal partnership. Uh, he doesn't want to force anyone to choose. But but I also think that the, the Biden administration really wants to have it both ways on this question. They They say, we don't want to force you to choose. But in the same breath, they also expect African compliance with U.S. sanctions, uh, and they and they will threaten, uh, as our, our U.N. ambassador uh, did just uh, a few days ago, uh, will threaten them with penalties if they should get crosswise with our sanctions. Uh, and so, in that sense, the 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 global reach of our sanctions regimes uh, necessarily force countries uh, to to make choices between uh, aligning firmly in our, our camp uh, or uh, being seen as aligning with other major powers. Uh, we, we don't, and, and, and this, is, this is a problem that the US has had going back many decades, even, even back into the Cold War, uh, which was this, this very strong dislike of countries that tried to stay non-aligned between two camps. And so, and of course that was most of the, the newly independent countries of Asia and Africa. These countries didn't want to align themselves with either the U.S. or the Soviet Union, and I think that's still true today. They they would like to pursue their interests and and do business with as many other states as they can. Uh, they're not interested in cutting anyone off uh, or antagonizing anyone. And of course, the a lot of nations in Africa have uh, strong economic ties with Russia, and uh, many of them, as we know, are dependent on grain coming from Ukraine and Russia, and can't afford to simply blow them off and stop stop doing business with them, business with them because tens and hundreds of millions of people in Africa uh, need that food to survive and so their their governments i think are being uh, quite pragmatic and are not inclined to to buy the the reassurances coming from Washington that they're not being forced to choose when they're at the same time being threatened uh, with the possibility of uh, sanctions penalties uh, if they if they don't uh, effectively side with us anyway. Uh, one of the other things that is notable about the uh, the speech and about this uh, about the trip that Blinken is taking this week is that he is framing it again uh, in terms of democracy promotion and, and pushing this the same line about the importance of democracy uh, when you know many this again brings us back to the, the same old problem that we run into in many other regions of the world, the U.S. has many security partners that hardly qualify as democracies and that we have rarely pressured to uh, improve their, their treatment of dissenters and, and political opponents uh, over the decades. Uh, I think Blinken will be going to Rwanda uh, later in the week. Uh, by the time this is broadcast, uh, he'll probably already have been there. Uh, and and Rwanda is sort of one of the outstanding examples of the hypocrisy of U.S. approach in Africa, where uh, the U.S. has had a very cozy relationship with Paul Kagame, uh, who has been president ever since he seized power in the wake of the genocide back in 1994. Uh, this is uh, this is someone who has governed uh, very much as an authoritarian uh, and has had his political enemies assassinated. Uh, and he's uh, been locking up dissidents and, and accusing them of terrorism uh, in, in what I think are, are basically 
with using sham charges to try to suppress people that are critical of his rule. Um, and so it would, be an, it would be an important test of Blinken's seriousness on this point if he uh, goes to Rwanda and then doesn't say anything or put any pressure on Kagame to change the way that he does business. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, what we're going to find is that there, there's going to be a lot of democracy talk as usual, but not a lot of follow through. Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. And, you know, I want to give them credit to for outlining new strategies, but they're not really new strategies. I remember covering this issue back during, I believe it was the second Obama term. And I I was attending a conference. I think it, let's just say it was CSIS. It was a typical Washington think tank. And the theme was something like, why are we still ignoring Africa? Obama's strategies for the next four years. And a lot of these things were on the bill, like uh, you know, addressing the issues of climate change and famine and civil society and developing democratic systems and security as well. And this is not to say that there aren't a lot of well-meaning, earnest people working in this town who want to see these programs through. I feel like there's this constant tension between the State Department and career state officials, people like Lizzie Shackelford, who we've interviewed on this show before, who have spent their entire careers trying to make lives better in Africa for the State Department, who were forced out over political reasons, or they felt just depleted by, um, you know, just one failure after another to see these programs through. The tension between those well-meaning people and the military, which has its own mission in Africa, which we've talked to Nick Terse on this show, realizing that there are secret proxy wars going on all over Africa and beyond. Uh, They just get rubber stamped by Congress. And so, you know, we know that that clash between these military missions and these counterinsurgency, counterterrorism missions, and the humanitarian missions are preventing real growth, real reforms, and, and, and a democratic civil society to actually flourish because it turns, you know, when it comes down to it, most of our energy is put into the military side. And we know that that's actually having a, a countermanding effect on these communities. And uh, it's unfortunate. I do feel like, yes, he does say all the right things, but I didn't see a lot in, or, or I, I guess it's yet to be seen where uh, if we can put our money where our mouth is. And this won't just become, um, you know, another another ground for a great power competition and continued um, military, um, a military mission in many of these countries, particularly in Mali and these other region uh, countries in the Sahel, which are really suffering from these security issues right now. Right. Well, and as you, you were uh, pointing to, some of those security issues come out of uh, some of the security assistance that we've been providing to militaries uh, in West Africa and the Sahel, uh, where we have been strengthening 
the militaries of these countries, uh, so much so that they have become uh, much more abusive uh, towards civilian populations in the name of their local counterinsurgencies, uh, and in some cases have become so powerful that they've ended up toppling their governments and, and seizing control of their countries. Uh, and so uh, you, you can, it may not be a direct case of cause and effect, but you can certainly see how our security assistance has contributed to the deterioration of political conditions in many of these countries in West Africa, the Sahel. Um, and, and of course, we, we know the, the knock-on effects of past interventions have also had uh, destructive effects in that part of Africa as well. Uh, the, the overflow from the Libyan war ended up destabilizing Mali, uh, leading to the conflict that is still uh, creating problems there today. And so uh, that's the, those are the kinds of, of destructive uh, influences that we that our government has had uh, over the last uh, well 10, 15 years at least. Uh, and, and those are the things that I think really need to be reformed uh, and, and uh, improved through better congressional oversight. Unfortunately, what we're seeing from Congress, is very much this uh, zero-sum competition approach uh, embodied by bills like the the Countering Russia's Malign Activities in Africa Act. Is that that's actually the name of the bill, if you can believe it? Um, which uh, African countries uh, and including South Africa, because the South African Foreign Minister made a point of of calling out that bill when it was proposed uh, as an example of how the U.S. really is trying to divide. Africa up into to camps uh, and punish those that don't get on board uh, with a U.S. agenda, uh, and so that there we're we're seeing how Congress uh, is having uh, their their own malign effects on our foreign policy in Africa, as they have often had in other parts of the world, as they try to to posture and show how tough they are on Russia or on China, uh, and end up shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, by making it seem like we're like we are dictating terms uh, to these countries instead of engaging with them as the partners that we say that we want to be, and so I think that's that. And I don't know that that's a problem that the administration can fix because that's that's how Congress unfortunately intervenes in foreign policy a lot of the time uh, in not very constructive ways. Uh, but they the administration could certainly signal its displeasure with this bill uh, in order to to indicate that that's not the direction that they want to go and that's not the kind of uh, leadership that they want to have uh, in their dealings with uh, African states. Yeah, and, I, and I'm happy when I hear people like the South African Minister for International Affairs pushing back with, you know, Anthony Blinking standing right next to her in the, in the press conference saying, hey, you know, we're not going to be bullied. You may not be bullying us, you know, she was gracious, you know, she was using her, you know, she was using her language wisely. Uh, she says, well, you're not exactly bullying us, but we've noticed the inconsistency of your approach, whether it be to the Palestinians on one hand or the Ukrainians on the other. And we know why you're here, um, but we're just letting you know that we have our own interests and maybe those interests may align with you sometimes and maybe at times not. And like you said, Dan, I mean, they have um, a serious issue uh, with um, their food supply right now. And they really do need to keep those connections with Russia open. 
And so they aren't going to be bullied and they're not alone. And I, and I feel like the rest of the world is pretty cognizant when they see uh, people like Anthony Blinken and last week, Linda Greenfield, our representative to the, the UN swooping in, you know, a week after Sergei Lavrov was there making his charm offensive to uh, the African nations. They're not stupid. They know why they're getting all of this attention. And you know what? You can't blame them for playing it to their own to their own benefit. And um, and I'm glad to see it all like spoken about so openly in the press and so that the United States doesn't continue to get away uh, with some of the shell game that it's been um, participating in over the, uh, over the last several years when it comes to this great power competition. And just one more point to make. Uh, There was a lot of emphasis in Blinken's speech on aid programs and, and development programs that the U S has done in Africa over the years. And, and that's all very well. Uh, but one of the things that everyone will notice, I think, uh, about this Africa strategy is very much like U.S. approach to many other regions in the world, there is not much in the way of economic statecraft to be found uh, because it has not been a priority uh, for the U.S. to build up economic ties with many of these parts of the world. Uh, and the, the, the level of trade with Africa as a whole is actually quite negligible uh, between the United States and Africa, which is, which is remarkable when you think about it, when you consider how many hundreds of millions of people live in these dozens of countries. Um, that that we have such slender economic ties, so, so few economic ties uh, between us uh, and Africa, when, as Blinken himself says, uh, Africa is going to be one of the, the major centers of the future uh, of the planet, uh, as, as their population will continue to grow and they'll become uh, increasingly important uh, to the rest of the world. So we, you know, the U.S. has definitely been far behind in terms of cultivating those relations. And, uh, and it's, it's inevitable that the countries there are going to deal with any country that's willing to actually invest and, and pay attention to them, uh, which the, the Russians and the Chinese have been doing, especially the Chinese, uh, for a long time. Our guest today is John Tierman. He is the executive director and a principal research scientist at MIT's Center for International Studies. He is author or co-author and editor of 15 books on international affairs. That includes the most recent book, Republics of Myth, National Narratives, and the U.S.-Iran Conflict, co-authored with Hussein Benai and Malcolm Byrne. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, we're very glad you could join us. Uh, I, I enjoyed the book very much. It's a very interesting way of looking at the U.S.-Iranian relationship over the last 40 years, uh, and, and the, the focus is on the, these national narratives. Uh, can you tell us how and why do the national narratives of the U.S. and Iran clash so strongly with each other, and, when, and what are the consequences of that? Yes, well, every country has national narratives of some kind, and the United States and Iran have very well well-defined um, very substantial uh, narratives that they use 
in ways that we're not always conscious about. You know, they, their folklore, their popular entertainment, their, uh, in some cases, religious, uh, all kinds of cultural inputs into these narratives over a period of time, over hundreds of years, sometimes. And the United States has one that has more than one, but I think the dominant master narrative is the frontier myth that's been so well articulated by Richard Slotkin, a uh, cultural historian uh, in three volumes, big volumes, um, that he published about 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and this is about the Puritans in particular giving life to this idea of taming the wilderness, um, confronting the savage in the wilderness, and reaping the bounty. And this took us really across the continent over the next, you know, 300 years or so. Uh, when the when the continent was settled, so to speak, um, it was an object of interest for people like Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and others that this this narrative, this frontier myth, the frontier values that go with it, uh, would be taken across seas. First, the Philippines with the idea they would go to China and then later other places. And, you know, it was always expansionist. It was always the kind of, you know, you could call it imperialism, you could call it other things. But actually, uh, it was very specific to the idea of the frontier and these values of, of taming the savages in particular to gain the bounty of wherever they were. And it's in popular entertainment, cowboys and Indians, you know, look around and you see it everywhere once you start looking. In Iran, their national narrative is very different. They've really had two, but the dominant one now is the is the celebration of Imam Hussein, who is a grandson of the Prophet. And <clears throat> Hussein was defeated in a battle for leadership of Islam. And he has been celebrated as a martyr to Islam. And a lot of this celebration has to do with suspicion of foreigners who defeated him and, you know, blood, <laughs> the, the, the martyrdom uh, that he uh, suffered. And this has grown over time. 
as Iran has really been dominated by foreign powers for a long, long time. In fact, the, the celebration was yesterday in Iran. Sure. So these two narratives have come into conflict with each other in the last 60 or 70 years since the Mossadegh overthrow and have continued to be in conflict with each other. If you look at how, how Iran speaks about the United States uh, over this period, it's always about imperialism and them wanting to grab their oil and, um, you know, other things that fit into the frontier myth. And on this side, our reckoning with Iran always has to do with, you know, mad mullahs and, you know, um, terrorism, which is kind of a substitute for what we consider here Indian violence and so on. So they clash very directly um, and have continued to clash up to this day. You can see it now in the nuclear negotiations that Iran is not really playing fair with the negotiations are continuing to commit terrorist acts, um, wants to build a nuclear weapon, and so on. So it's, as I said, it's not the only narratives, but they are very dominant. They involve a lot of violence. Uh, and um, I think they prevent a kind of, you know, way of dealing with each other and um, makes it difficult for what we're seeing right now. Sure. And in one of your final chapters, uh, you conclude that uh, JCPOA or not, the United States and Iran will cling to their narratives and that the narratives still guide politics and policy. And we seem to be seeing that with the Biden administration, uh, which has become I think a bit more inflexible over time and, and a bit more conventionally anti-Iranian in their positions. Uh, how concerned are you that there will be a direct conflict between the U.S. and Iran as a result of this these clashing narratives in the coming years? Well, if the JCPOA is not concluded successfully, I think there's a big chance of some kind of violence, uh, probably... Uh, the United States attacking Iranian nuclear facilities, uh, possibly with the aid of uh, the Israelis. Um, on the Iranian side, I think there's a chance of an increased level of political violence around the region, probably not so much directly against the United States, although that's also a possibility. 
these are things I didn't think would happen, even under Trump, um, because I thought there would be eventually an accommodation of some kind. But really, the Biden administration, much to my surprise, really, uh, is is taking on the trappings of the frontier mentality. And the new government, well, the government as of about a year ago in Iran, um, seems to be willing to go right to the brink. Not quite sure what they're going to do about it. I'm not sure that they're going to build a nuclear weapon. That's the irony of all this. But um, they certainly are, are taking a pretty hard line. Now, they've been negotiating in the last few days, so maybe that's a good sign, but we just don't know where it's going. Hi, John. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, in, um, in that vein, how much has Israel sort of exacerbated these tensions and have allowed these, you know, clashing myth narratives to flourish on both sides? What role are they playing uh, that are that is preventing the sort of way forward and in terms of like a, a an actual relationship that's not built on these competing mythologies? Well, certainly they've they've been a spoiler in big time um, in U.S. policy making. We just saw the other day a number of Democratic candidates for Congress, including um, you know pretty progressive people. Um, being defeated by enormous amounts of money coming from APAC and others to defeat them. So you see this repeatedly. Um, but also they just have Congress over a barrel and always have. Uh, and their, their governance has always been extremely hostile to Iran. Now they're, you know, they're also a settler nation. So it may, I haven't really looked at this carefully, but it may be part of their, you know, frontier mess of sorts. Uh, but interestingly, a number of former military generals and intelligence people in Israel after their service in government tend to come around and say, you know, the nuclear deal is a good thing or, you know, there should be some accommodation. So that makes me think that it's just purely uh, political uh, grandstanding because it's popular in, in Israel. They do have reasons to be a little bit fearful, of course, but you look at the balance of power there, there's no question Israel can defend itself uh, very easily. So it's been a, it's been a major uh, impediment 
to any accommodation. You could see this very clearly in the Obama administration when they did conclude the deal in 2015. But Obama would never acknowledge that we could have a different relationship with Iran. A better relationship, maybe not, you know, a perfect one. But, uh, and I think this was in part due to the Israel lobby. Yeah, I suspect you're right. And um, just for the listeners, you had mentioned um, these former Israeli officials who, who did come out and say that the JCPOA, that getting out of the deal, Trump's getting out of the deal, was not necessarily such a good thing. And there were several uh, who went on the record, surprisingly. But you're correct. I mean, the official position has been to thwart this deal every step of the way and suggest that perhaps a military solution is in the offing rather than a, a diplomatic one. Um, you mentioned Obama and all of the efforts successfully at bridging, brokering rather, this deal during his own term, but yet there had not been the effort to go all the way and create the conditions for a new relationship. And I, someone once told me, and it's stuck with me ever since, that the American establishment, the official Washington establishment, has been so fully entrenched, I guess, in this frontier mythology that you've written about uh, for so long now, since the 1950s and the hostage crisis in the late 70s and beyond, that generationally there seems to be no opportunity for a different way of thinking about Iran, about Iranians, about their each each of their positions on on this political chessboard, how much do you see uh, of the the American establishment generationally as being a part of the problem? So, if the entire uh, Washington. Uh, all of the agencies that are involved in national security and foreign policy, whether it be the State Department, the CIA, our intelligence agencies, the White House, uh, the military, if they are all of the same mind, this frontier mythology, if you will, is there any way forward to detente if if there there are no one there is no one there engaging in any like strategic empathy? for example, to see it a different way. Yeah, that's a good description of what's going on in Washington. The, um, the one time that we had a chance was really with Obama and his early, before the deal, his early reaching out to the Iranian people and the letters that he wrote and then he wrote to some of the leaders and so on. And I thought that was pretty remarkable, actually. Um, but he didn't follow up on it. And I think he somehow uh, was given schooling in, in this. You have to remember, though, too, that the Iranians are not really prone to reaching out either. Um, maybe under Khatami, 
president uh, from 97 to 2005 and a little bit um, uh, later, but it is, it is clear to me that the, the difficulty of, of reaching out and, and really forming a more, uh, you know, normal set of activities uh, and finally a relationship that is normalized uh, is, is very difficult in Iran as well as here. For Iran, it seems to stem mostly from the Supreme Leader Khamenei, who is deeply, deeply suspicious of the United States. He looks at the, the period that we were talking about earlier from the 50s onward as a poisonous, he uses that term, poisonous um, period of time where the United States dominated Iran to some extent and um, introduced a lot of cultural, um, you know, uh, bad things, you know, films, music, uh, corrupting young people and so on. So they're, they're pretty set against it. I think it would have to take Khamenei to pass away and then there would be a, a power struggle of some kind and that would then determine whether or not they were open to something new. But, you know, the, the Biden people uh, and the Democratic Party generally just not really open to that. Right, and one of the things that you remark on in the book is that the our political culture overall is uh, very obsessed with Iran and in a, in a very hostile way. You, uh, you say in the book that it uh, obsesses about Iran like no other adversary. Um, what what are the the mix of factors that you think account for this obsession, uh, and and how how can they be weakened uh, to 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 lead to some sort of more normal uh, relationship in the future? Right. Well, I think Iran and earlier uh, Iraq under uh, Saddam were two countries that would not play ball with the U.S. global, uh, you know, dominance, basically, in that region particularly. So you have, you know, most of the uh, Gulf states, the Arab Gulf states, uh, and a lot of other countries in the region that at least um, do business with the United States and usually uh, on U.S. terms. And I always thought that the war in Iraq was partly due to this you know, obstreperousness on Saddam's part uh, that he wasn't going to play ball with us. And when I say play ball, I mean play by the rules that we have set uh, in the global community, um, including uh, relations with Israel, uh, oil economy, 
uh, and so on. Now there's just Iran. And uh, I think that's one of the major reasons that uh, Iran also sees this as an attempt at domination. And again, going back to the frontier idea uh, and their own narrative, uh, they've been under the domination of foreign countries for a very long time, hundreds of years. The Turks, Russians, the British, uh, a lot of Arab states. So they're, you know, they're very locked into this idea that the United States is just another uh, hegemonic power that's come to come to take their oil and and um, and dominate them, which we did, you know, for a long time. Thank you very much, uh, John Terman, uh, co-author of Republics of Myth, National Narratives in the U.S.-Iran Conflict. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.